Today on the Vine Church Podcast, we have a return guest. I think, Jen, you might be the first return guest we have. I'll have to go back and verify that. But I think you might be our first return guest, uh, Jen Oshman. Jen Oshman is um, a wife of a pastor, and she is an author, and she's a mother of four daughters. And they live in Colorado, beautiful, beautiful Colorado. Um, And she's written a book called Cultural Counterfeits, and the subtitle is Confronting Five Empty Promises of Our Age and How We Were Made for So Much More. And Jen, I was just going to read the description just to kind of orient listeners a little bit. Is that all right? That sounds great. Thanks. Um, Here's just the description um, on the back. In our search for meaning and purpose, we can be influenced by idols like outward beauty and ability, sex, abortion, and gender fluidity. Even good things like marriage and motherhood can become symbols of idolatry. We may sense that these counterfeits are hollow and leave us feeling unsettled. But where should we turn instead? Jen Oshman equips us to reject the empty cultural promises of our age and recognize our unshakable and eternal identities in Jesus. Addressing timely topics such as the sexual revolution, LGBTQIA+, social media, and feminism. Oshman provides compelling cultural analysis and engaging discussion questions to help us uncover God's good design and purpose for our lives. Good news awaits. We really were made for so much more. Man, that that sounds like a lot. (laughs) (laughs) You're right. There's a lot of ground covered in this book. And, you know, when I first pitched the idea to my editors at Crossway, one of the first things they said was, well, maybe you should write five books. Maybe there should right. be one book per topic. Right. And I said, yeah, that's a fair point. But there is there are some common threads through all five of these counterfeits or all five of these idols. And I think I can distill it down into one book written for women to sort of pull back the facade and shine the light of Christ on these empty promises of our age and hopefully woo women to him instead. Yeah. So the target audience is women. What, yes. if a, like, uh, can, what if guys read it? Like, what do you think? I mean, cause I've read some of it now and that's like, this is good stuff. Yeah. I actually have heard from a number of men. I, um, I think more than my first book enough about me, more men are reading this than I thought would. And I think it's mm-hmm. because they do have a desire to understand the age that we live in. Yeah. They want to understand things like social media and me too, and how to navigate right. these waters with their wives, their female um, church attendees, their daughters. They, they want to be better equipped for these conversations. So I, I assume, I mean, I'm sure everybody's different when it comes to writing books, but how did your journey of coming on to this book, um, how did that come about? I mean, is it just like, is it an evolutionary process or is it just like one day you're like, boom, this is the book and it needs to be written or how does, how does your personal journey happen with a book like this? Yeah. Well, I have been in women's ministry for over 20 years. And as you Mm -hmm. said in the introduction, I also have four daughters. So Mm -hmm. I've had a front row seat now for more than two decades um, as to what it looks like to be a female who wants to follow Jesus and abide in Jesus and what it looks like to be affected by the cultural air that we live in, the waters that we're swimming in. And so these five idols of our age, these five counterfeits, as they call them, they are the ones that I have observed in women's ministry that have been the most attractive, 
the most winsome toward women, but also the most destructive. Mm. So these are five idols that have promised women. If you have this, if you reach this status, or if you have this appearance or have this kind of encounter or this kind of identity, then you will really be satisfied. Then you'll really have reached the pinnacle of who you should be. And I've watched woman after woman and myself included, I am not unscathed, um, give herself over to these counterfeits and find that while they promised life, they actually delivered death. And so it's just a desire of mine to shine the light of truth on these counterfeits so that women might see what they really are. And then again, always just drawing her back to the heart of the father and the goodness yeah. of our God instead. Yeah, that's really good. Well said, well said. Well, I mean, we rattled off a bunch of controversial issues there. Yes. Um, I mean, it's it's not for the faint of heart. And I, I, I uh, admire your courage and I, I thank you for writing on some, you know, issues that could get you a lot of heat. Um, yeah. Have you received some heat for this? And what does that look like if so? Yeah, you know, I I wish that I could maybe better understand or explain why I just feel an, un, you know, this driving itch to talk about these things. I kind of wish that I didn't because sure. I don't like to stir the pot. I don't like to be someone who people, you know, disagree with or think that I am somehow like trying to write clickbait types of articles or books or whatever. Like right. these are just issues that I feel like the Lord has impressed upon me mm-hmm. and convictions that he's given me that I believe flow from his word. And I believe the spirit has just called me to this act of obedience of please, please write about this, please speak about this. Mm. And so I do, I, I feel like it's, you know, my husband and I were missionaries overseas for years. We've been church planters here. We've adopted like, to me, this feels like another step of faith or obedience where the Lord is like calling me out and saying, will you trust me? Will you do this thing and trust me? Because I'm asking you, Jen, to be faithful, but I'm the one who will grow the fruit. The results are up to me. How people respond, that's on God. That is not on me. And so I really seek to rest in that. And so whether it's positive feedback or negative feedback, and I do receive both, thankfully, I think most of my readers love the Lord and love his word. And so generally the feedback I get is, thank you. You've put words to something that I I was feeling, but couldn't describe myself. Um, I really appreciate that positive feedback, but sometimes I do get angry feedback and I have to just remember the good press and the bad press doesn't matter. Um, I want to fix my eyes on Jesus and obey him. Amen. Amen. You said in passing, you guys have lived in different places throughout the world. Remind me again, where you guys have lived. Is it Okinawa? Yeah, correct. Okinawa, Japan, and also Brno, Czech Republic, and then finally here in Colorado. So I'm wondering, are these cultural counterfeits specifically American counterfeits, uh, North American, Western culture, or do you see these same cultural counterfeits in cultures that I assume are as different from Okinawa to to, uh, Czech Republic? Sure. So I think that a lot of them, there is overlap throughout the world. What what tends to be necessary for these particular idols of our age, though, is wealth. So while I do see these idols present in Japan, I don't know that you could say that that is true for all of Asia. So populations that are impoverished are not going to have the same temptation to idolize their bodies, their beauty, their outward appearance. Um, Now, of course, that is there. It's just going to be a different kind of snare. So I do think for sure that the five idols that I have identified are very prevalent in the wealthy West, especially. But I will say that I do think Japan has also um, suffered at the hands of these counterfeits. Yeah. 
Let's unpack that a little more, though. Why do you think poverty... What's the connection between poverty and and not being as obsessed with how you look Mm -hmm. and your image? Well, a lot of these idols, you know, going back to my first book, Enough About Me, that was just my desire to shine light on our culture of self and the the way that we're living that seeks to be self-sufficient, self-made, self-help, and where we are really just burning out because we have made ourselves our God and it's not going well for us. So that's really what Enough About Me was. And then the cultural counterfeits zeroes in on these five specific idols, which really derive from that overall um, value of our culture to be autonomous, to be independent, to sort of be self-made women. And so if we're looking to our own bodies, our own sexual encounters, our own identity, sexual orientation, gender identity, those things are not going to bear up under the weight of the pressure that we're applying to them, of what we're asking them to deliver. They just won't. And so in many cases, we've made these good gifts into the ultimate gift and put them in the seat that only God should be sitting in. Um, and it's to our demise. Yeah. But what about what about culture, like uh, poor people in a co- mm-hmm. core, I, maybe I was spacing off and I didn't quite no, I don't said. think I answered it quite. I, I didn't answer that specifically. Good call. It's all good. No, um, it's all good. Like, um, like I we do think get... like we, we, no matter your income level, there is going to be a desire to trust in yourself rather than yes. to surrender and submit right. to the God right. who made you and died right. to save you. So I think that all of these idols, including just that idol of self or idolizing our own bodies, our own beauty, our own ability, those can definitely be found the world over. Um, There are some unique pitfalls in the wealthy West in that we have things like iPhones in our hands at all times. We're scrolling social media all the time. We're comparing what our own productivity, our own capability, our own outward beauty to that of other women. So there, you know, there's nothing new under the sun, as Solomon said, and that's not different in 2022. And yet it's useful and wise to be um, critical. And I mean that in a good way, like to critique our own culture and our own specific time and place so that we can apply God's word to it. Yeah. I I think too, about like a culture of poverty um, where sometimes if you're really destitute, you don't have time to think about yourself as much in some ways, because you're just trying to survive. And the other thing, if a lot of these issues are downstream from a culture of individualism, um, in my experience with poverty culture, even in the United States, um, and also abroad is when you're poor, you're forced to rely on other people. Mm -hmm. And so there's less, there's less of a culture of individualism. And so certainly there's, there's going to be issues that flow uh, from a culture of poverty, but the same type of issues, um, might not show up as, as readily. Like, like I think, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but like, you're not seeing, um, young girls talk about transitioning their gender in the poorest slums of Africa. Yeah. I mean, definitely not seeing like this. I describe in the LGBTQIA plus chapter, rapid onset gender dysphoria, which is a unique phenomenon to the wealthy West, to Europe, Western Europe and the United States. And, um, you know, we're seeing a 1000 to 5,000% increase in the number of girls looking to transition genders over just the last few years. 
Right. That's an insane increase. And so that is something that is not taking place in the developing world. That is something that is unique to our context. And I think you're absolutely right. Like we have this um, idea, this facade that we are somehow self-made and self-sufficient. And so we think, well, let me try on more identities so that I can right. finally be satisfied. And um, it turns out it is to our demise. Yeah. So of all these chapters, um, that might be somewhat controversial in nature for a variety of reasons. Was there one specific chapter that was the hardest to write for you? Yes. And it would be exactly that one, the LGBTQIA plus chapter. Mm. Um, and that is because I have personal friends, women who I've been very involved with in my years over ministry who, um, in the past were battling the temptation to toward homosexuality or towards transgenderism. And a couple of them have given way to those temptations and now live in homosexual lifestyle and have transitioned their genders. So these, these are women that I love that I have Mm -hmm. been in, you know, deeply involved with in the past and maintain a friendship with with now and also family members who fit that description. So I wrote each chapter with fear and trepidation and pleading with the Lord to help me speak precisely and with love and grace as well as truth. Um, But I think just because of the temperature of our day around that issue in particular, um, you know, they were all hard to write, but that one I think was, I I felt the most gravity because I I don't want to hurt those I love. And yet um, sometimes the word of God does hurt. So, yep. Yeah, it, it, that is true for sure. Um, one of the th- ways that we talk about this or try to talk about this at our church is um, on kind of the macro and the micro level and helping people think through those distinctions. So um, at the macro level, I want to be persuaded and be articulate about what the Bible says about the human body and um, what are the implications of his creation and the goodness of our bodies, and ultimately, um, for those that are his, you know, my body is good for a variety of reasons, but maybe the first is because 1 Corinthians 6 says that it's a temple of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, for a variety of reasons, my physical body is really, really good. And so, I want to be able to talk about that at like a macro level. Um, and that maybe there's implications for our culture on a macro level that uh, we haven't thought through and that could be harmful, like the trajectory that we're on could really be harmful long-term if um, for a variety of reasons that we don't need to get into right here. But like one being like that um, words should have meaning, you know, words correspond to something in the real world. And if we just are really, really malleable, with how words can change definitions, um, that, that can be really problematic on a societal level, but mm-hmm. on the micro level, so I want to be able to talk about that at a micro level or my macro level, but on the micro level, like if I'm, if I've got somebody sitting across from me at my dining room table that is struggling with wondering if they were, you know, they're born in the wrong body, that's something that, um, we should have compassion for. And um, I don't need to preach all the macro truths in the micro situation necessarily all at the same time, hmm. knowing that that truth is going to have to come out at some point. But having the distinction and the patience for compassion and relationship. Um, so I, I think our culture just like really 
um, doesn't talk about like uh, the the distinction between macro and micro um, is really important, and mm-hmm. oftentimes the the macro discussion fails to acknowledge that this is another human human being right. that's probably hurting and probably has a really long backstory. Yeah. Um, I don't know. How does that kind of strike you? Man, I wish that it didn't strike me so timely, but it does because this is genuinely a conversation I am having on the daily with my husband and with my good friends who are in my life right here and right now, because I write and I podcast at a macro level. So I'm speaking these truths, as you said, to a general population in a general way. And yet it does impact people on a micro level. And so Mm -hmm. what do I do? So an example that I not necessarily prepared to talk about, but we could dive in of of where this conflicts is pronouns. Yeah. So when I, when I write about it, when I speak about it, what pronouns should I use? Should I use the preferred pronoun of the, you know, the person, like when I podcasted about the swimmer, Leah Thomas, who was born male, but now swims as a female, do those pronouns then in that podcast episode, should they be male or should they be female? Um, and that's, that's one conversation, but then another one is like, well, when I spend time with my friend who, what was born female and mm-hmm. we were friends as she was a female, but she is now a male or has transitioned, um, in every way to being a male, you know, do I treat her like a man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I don't have good answers for that. In fact, I've sat down to write a number of articles about what to do. Yeah. And I've just, I haven't, I haven't been willing to publish those articles yet because I, I don't know the answer to that question, to every right. scenario. And I feel like I'm writing it in pencil at the moment. And I, I just don't know, Zach, what do you think about well, that? It's well, so I mean, I think, I think there's, man, this is the challenge of contextualization. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like we have a new mission field. Like this is a new issue. Like there's nothing new under the sun, but this is kind of new under the sun in terms of yeah. Christians living in a culture that celebrates um, and encourages uh, this. And and so when we think about what it means to be missionaries in a in a context that does not share our values, you know, you've done this twice now in Okinawa and in the Czech Republic. And I don't know what the answer is. I just know that like, it's a similar angst mm-hmm. where it's like, it I'm is. not totally sure what the exact precise right thing to do is in every scenario. And every, every missionary I've talked to that moves to a completely foreign context just talks about this all the time of like, yeah, at the, ma- at the if we go macro, micro, at the macro level, I know the big truce, but how those absolutely apply in every single scenario um, when I'm dealing with a culture that's totally foreign to what I know is really challenging. So I'm just saying that to be sympathetic, mm-hmm. that um, I'm not sure what the right answer is either. Um, yeah. But I feel like, um, you know, there's there's like relation, if, if at all possible, um, fighting to maintain relationships without sacrificing conviction is yeah. the sweet spot. That's it. And I don't Absolutely. know. <laughs> and there's going to be a time when it's like, well, I guess I might have to lose this relationship. Right. Um, and a time when right. it's like, no, I'm just not going to dig in right now on this one. 
I'm right. going to let, let that one go. And man, may the Holy Spirit fill that space of tension. Yeah. And what, where I really want to land at the end of the day, just as a reminder to myself and to other believers is these things are so hard, but let's yeah. not shrink back. You know, we know the author of life. We have the words of life. Amen. Let's, let's not shrink back from shining brightly in our context and just being loving and caring and an open door um, for anybody in our community. It's, it's so hard and I don't have the right answers, but let's yeah. not run away from it. Amen. And, and, and just the spirit of prayerfulness every step of the way. Yes. And, and, and I know I don't have this passage memorized, but knowing that the promise from Jesus to his disciples when they are persecuted is you don't have to prep beforehand what you're going to say. I'll give you what to say in the mm-hmm. moment mm-hmm. and prayerfully just casting ourselves upon him in conversations that are potentially really, um, inflammatory. Um, but not always. And just Lord, give me the words I need to say. I need moment by moment wisdom. I mean, that's what I think that's just the Christian posture in general with yeah. anybody that we're engaging with, you know? Yeah. That's so good. Good reminder. Well, let me ask you this. Um, because you write, you write, a, uh, you've written about you know some transgender issues in our culture and also feminism in our culture, and when you bring up the the subject of the Division One swimmer, um, what's the name again? She slash he goes by Leah Thomas. Leah Thomas. Yep. Yeah. So I would think, and I don't have a lot of experience with this conversation, but I would think there would be a lot of non-Christian feminists that are not excited about that issue because it feels like it's taking away from women and having a biological male win first place um, doesn't feel like protection of women. Like we have men's and women's sports for a reason. Like, I mean, this is an extreme example, but I think it's sometimes it's helpful to think of the extreme examples. Like I'm a big basketball fan and it's like if LeBron James were to transition and play in the WNBA, like it would be a sports massacre. Right. You know what I mean? I mean, he would score 120 points a game and there would be nothing that, that doesn't feel like, but, but in theory we have to, if, if we go with the, the gender ideology, we have to say that that's in theory, that's okay. Or, or do we not? You know what I mean? Cause I'm sure, and I'm just curious, like how you're interacting with non-Christians on this issue that don't agree at all. That, that, yes. that, yeah. I thought yeah, you just hear those, about that. Those women do exist. Probably the most notable one is J.K. Rowling, the author of Harry Potter. Um, she is a staunch feminist, but she is also um, very opposed to um, biological males competing in female sports. And she's been very outspoken for it and has cost her dearly. I mean, she has received numerous death threats and she's, you know, depending on who you ask or who you follow, she's wildly unpopular generally online because of the stance that she's taken. The other people taking the stance pretty hard are athletes, female athletes who have been waking up um, before the sun since the time they were five, which is the case for the Penn swim team and those that they compete against. And they have been given all of their summers over to the sport of swimming. And they have given their bodies and their souls to this sport only to be met in in competition um, with a biological male. So definitely athletes are very much opposed to it. um, Non-believing, non-Christian athletes. And so I I do think, you know, as someone, I, um, this may be a controversial statement in and of itself. And I, but I say it in the book, like I'm, 
I'm not, not afraid to call myself a feminist. I feel like I am, you know, pro female and love to see women succeed and be empowered by God to do what he has made them to do. And so to me, it is quite anti-feminist to allow biological males to compete in our spaces. I mean, it's a whole reason we have title IX. Right. title IX came around so that um, universities who receive federal funding would make space for women to compete in sports to the same degree that they've made space for men to compete in sports. And so we're just negating decades of equality. And I think it is a shame. And I think we're going to regret it. Honestly, I think we're, things are shaking out right now. Um, I, I hope this conversation slows down in such a way that we can do something sensible and reasonable and equitable for women because we're losing our space. Um, and it's not okay. Yeah. Yeah, it feels like on some of these issues, you know, there's there's controversy brewing that's significantly volatile that has nothing to do with Christians. Like this could be one of those issues where it's like, man, there's there's, you know, both sides feel like there's a zero sum game, you know, and and win at all costs. Um, And man, like. In some ways, I feel like that's an opportunity, though, for Christians to be a light. And if there's carnage culturally, we can enter into that space, hopefully carrying ourselves in a way that's different. Um, yeah, I think one place we can minister even is amongst the women who are detransitioning. I mean, there's already a growing population of women in their 20s. Yeah. in the early thirties who transitioned into being a male in their teen years. And they did so by surgery and testosterone mm-hmm. and they woke up in their twenties and horribly regretted it and realized changing my gender did not make things better. Yeah. And so they are detransitioning and doing what they can hormonally through surgery, through counseling and otherwise to return to being the biological female that they are. And so I think that this is a population kind of like, post-abortive women who yeah. were talked into abortion, yeah. um, and in, in a way that, you know, really harmed them, um, their bodies and their souls. These are women who are wounded by these strong cultural currents of our day. And I hope and pray that the church can be sort of a hospital and practice hospitality to these women who are wounded and we can help them, um, just recover from, from what has happened. Yeah. Man, that's so painful. And 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 given the cultural climate, telling a story of detransition is not probably not celebrated. And so in some sense, they probably feel like their experience might be silenced. Yeah, it's it's a scary time to be speaking publicly for anybody. And so yeah. there you have to get come to a point, I think, of either feeling so fed up by the cultural winds that swayed you or um, just so convicted of the truth that you're willing to take some shots and, and put the truth out there. And I, I think we're seeing that um, there is a willingness, but I, I just want to encourage the church to be willing, but to also be kind and gracious and merciful as we do share the truth. Yeah. Amen. How do you seek to um, think, I mean, how do you seek to persuade Christians? Let's say there's a Christian who just hasn't really thought a lot about this issue um, and it's just kind of like a new believer and they're just like, well, if people feel that way, why can't they just do it? Like, you know, doesn't God love us just as we are and shouldn't we follow how we, how we feel? Um, how would you talk to that person and help them think through, um, uh, more of a discipleship of the body or a theology of the body? 
Yeah, that's a good question. And I think that we who are in the church need to acknowledge that that probably is the majority of the church because the majority of us are being discipled day in and day out by social media, by movies, by music, by what we're seeing online. And so we are receiving the message all day long. You know, you do you do what feels good. No regrets. Try this on, um, give it a go, you know? So I think that especially for our teens, even our teens who are in Christian schools or our teens who are in homeschool, I mean, they're receiving this discipleship as well, probably um, more strongly than we as parents are willing to admit or think is possible. So it's, it is important that we acknowledge that it is very tempting to sort of follow the cultural winds of our age and, um, and hope that it goes well. What I think is so key and what I think is powerful and convincing for my own heart is to come back to the word of God and the character of God. And the word does not change. And, um, these cultural issues were present in the day of Jesus as well. And so his words and the words of the apostle Paul and the words of the old Testament, I mean, they, they have meaning right here and right now. And so I think it's important as those who claim Christ for us to be rooted deeply in his word and to be shaped and discipled by it as much as the culture around us. And so my desire, like raising my teen daughters, my young adult daughters, we're having these conversations. The pressure is strong for them as young Christian women to cave to the cultural pressures of the day is to just keep going back to the text and saying, yeah. what does God say? Amen. But not only that, what kind of God is he? Let's Amen. not forget Amen. That this is the God who died at nothing to rescue you and me. He mm -hmm. is trustworthy and he is good. And we can stick with what he says. Mm -hmm. Amen. Yeah, that's good. That's really good, Jen. Um, how old is your oldest? So my our oldest child is our newest child. She's the one that we adopted when she was 12. So she's now 24 and okay. married and okay. has two children. Okay. <laughs> so that's our oldest, the mate. Next one down is my first bio child. She's 18. And then they're 16 and 15. Okay. So the 18 year old still in high school? No, she's just finished her freshman year okay. of college. So, so I would, where's she going to school? She goes to the Colorado school of mines, which is a secular STEM university here in Colorado. How have you been discussing the themes of your book with her experience at the university yeah. or at high school? Gosh, it has been a joy actually to discuss with her. Now, each of my girls are unique, um, but the the conversations that I am having with my daughter and that we had throughout the school year were really, really cool as she just shared like what's going on in her campus. And it's an extremely liberal secular university that puts probably all of their hope in science. And so I'm um, just seeing what's going on in the residence halls there. I mean, it would blow your mind. It blew my mind of like the kinds of parties they were having, the kinds of giveaways they were having. I mean, talk about like just exalting sex as our highest good. Like that's what's right. happening on the college campuses. So we just talk really openly about all of this and she's seeing it play out in the lives of her peers and her friends. And um, she too is having to decide Am I going to follow these cultural winds or am I going to stick close to the word of God? Yeah. And um, if my allegiance is to the Lord, then how do I also love him and love others? And so it's just, it has been such a joy, but also heartbreaking because as I pay a cost, you know, I don't want to like make that cost sound like it's really huge, but it is costly to speak the truth in a dark place. And as I pay it, I watch my daughter pay it as well, you know, to, yeah. to, and it's, and it's hard as a parent to watch yeah. your kid hurt. Yeah. But it's sure. worth it. For sure. It is worth it. Um, 
Yeah, I would imagine like for her, there's an opportunity and for all of us. But when you're in a context like that, where it's like, it's very different than my context where I have my home and I have my workplace and I don't, it's different than a hyper-sexualized college campus. But I would imagine there's an opportunity for her in the midst of the carnage. There's, there's carnage, there's always carnage from going the opposite way of God. Um, but for her to, to speak into some of that when the guy just used you and you thought he really liked you, I mean, that tale's old as time, but where, where guys have treated you as, a, as an object to be consumed and not a woman to be cherished, um, that there's a great opportunity for her in that, you know, I would yeah. imagine. No, there totally is. And I keep reminding her and it's good to remind her because it reminds me too, is that the work of the Lord is typically slow and unseen and to just trust that he's at work. He's the one who will be fruitful, but you be faithful and know that, especially, I mean, I think those of us who are way beyond college, we look back to our college days and go, that was huge back then. Like that person spoke truth into my life. And so I'm just keep telling her those seeds are there. Trust God with it. Yep. Amen. I want to read a quote that I found. Um, this is a short quote, short quote on uh, page 47. In light of this topic we were talking about, you say, uh, the sexual revolution didn't empower women. It silenced them. What does that mean? Can you unpack that for us? Sure. Well, it's not unrelated to what you just said, that example, the tale is all this time on a college campus of a guy yeah. using a girl. Um, the sexual revolution starting in the 1960s convinced our culture that our highest need and our highest good was sex and to have as many kinds of sexual encounters as possible. And the more you have, the more you will sort of realize and self-actualize and become the person that you were meant to be. Um, And so I think as we have believed that as women, and especially as even young girls have believed that, we have been raised to believe that the more sexy we are, the more sexual, the more sexualized we are, the more powerful we are, the more respected and revered in society we are. Because sex has paid off since then. I mean, sex has allowed you know, women to climb corporate ladders or to get certain roles in society. It has opened, opened doors to them. Um, but what we're seeing you know, as recently as 2017 with the, at, you know, the Me Too movement coming on the scene is that there is this growing crescendo of women who are looking at each other and realizing, I actually didn't like that. I actually was taken advantage of or participated in a system that actually used and abused my body. I, I've been told my whole life, isn't this great? Isn't this wonderful? Isn't this powerful? Aren't you using this? Aren't you so um, free as a woman that you can do this and use this? And what women are coming to terms with Um, as we're seeing in the Me Too movement is actually, we don't like that. That is not going well for us. So um, yeah, the sexual revolution has not protected or empowered women by any means. It has opened the floodgates for women's bodies to be utilized as instruments of exploitation. And I think um, it's been terrible for men and women. And I I hope, you know, there's a lot wrong with the Me Too movement because it's a secular one. And there's so much more as the subtitle of my book says, we were made for so much more. but it's a helpful alarm, like warning signal. And I would love to see some cultural change as a result of that. Yeah. I, I think it's interesting to think about, um, the whole idea of free sex. And, you know, if you're 
built a certain way as a woman, you should leverage that in your favor, get what you want. Um, attention from men can feel empowering. Um, but if they touch me and I don't want it, that's really horrible. So it seems like you have separate issues and the bridge between them is the word consent, right? And Yeah, that is so true. And so the consent is like this thing that is the ultimate um, difference between celebrating my my looks and, you know, like if you want to be objectified and, and you, you like that, um, go for it up until the point when they put their hands on you and you don't want that, um, then you should shut that down. And mm-hmm. of, of course, there's, bo- there's a lot we could say about both of those spectrums, but again, the bridge between them um, or differentiating between which scenario you're in is the word consent, right? And in my mind, that, that bridge feels really flimsy. It's so flimsy. Can you talk yeah. about that? Yeah, I would love to talk about that. In fact, you really identified something. I don't know if you saw a month or two ago, an article in the Washington Post by a woman who, a young woman, um, probably in her early 20s, but she's a columnist at the Washington Post. And she came out with a book the same day Cultural Counterfeits came out. And um, I cannot remember the title of it, but I can shoot it to you and you can stick it in the show notes. But it's from a secular perspective, secular author, but she makes the same claim that you just made. And it's like rethinking sex, like consent is not enough because guess what? Sometimes consent is we, we think twice something has already begun and we want to take it back. Right. Um, and so her argument is that she and her peers want to see greater strength in relationships and something less flimsy than consent. And what's so fascinating, I haven't read the book. I did read the article. Um, but what's so fascinating is unknowingly she is pointing to God's good design right. of marriage, right. which is a strong, you know, really monogamous relationship between right. one man and one woman. And not that all marriages are perfect and not that sometimes there aren't horribly dark things that lack consent in marriage exactly. as exactly. well. Exactly. But in general, we can say that as we obey the Lord's good design, mm-hmm. we have so much more to stand on than as yep. you said, the flimsy bridge of consent. Yeah, and I want to be, make sure I'm clear because I think if you were listening to what I just said and you didn't know me, um, yeah. and maybe we're <laughs> thinking in, um, without a sympathetic ear, I'm not saying that if a woman is dressed um, modestly that she somehow is at fault for a man touching her inappropriately. That's not what I'm saying at all. Um, but just 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 trying to um, trying to distinguish between these two different scenarios culturally, um, these two different issues culturally, on the one hand, sexual revolution, free love, and the other one, you know, like, don't touch me when I don't want to be touched or don't say gross things to me when I don't want to hear that, you know what I mean? But yeah, just to be clear. Sure. I I think what's hard is that we have put so much hope and so much stock in the idea of consent. I mean, I have Mm -hmm. said for years now in our culture, consent is king. Like that's what we, that's the one thing we're all relying on is consent. And it's just not enough because you can consent to your own exploitation. 
Right. You can, and I in the book, I call this the double victimization of girls is yeah. girls are raised to believe that the more sexual they are, the better. Right. And so that's the first victimization. And then yep. the second is when they actually become victims of a sexual, you know, assault or situation that they don't want, but it's, it's a double whammy because yeah. they believe this is for my good. Right. And then they go through it and it's not for their good. So you can consent to being exploited. That's yeah. the problem here. And yeah. so what we need to be holding out is the much stronger, more robust, eternal, timeless truths of who God made us to be and how these bodies are good, but how yeah. they are meant to be treated, our bodies and our souls together as one in relationship to each other. Um, yeah. And we are just far from that right now in our, our cultural context. And I want women to know they were made for more than that. Amen. And the other, another one I think of, and it's tragically so often the case when you mix alcohol and sex, what happens with consent there? You know what I mean? Is it consent if I was, you know, five beers in and not thinking clearly, but I consented, you know, right. or, or then you just shame that girl because, well, you shouldn't have been drunk. Why'd you hook up with the dude when you were drunk? Right. You know what I mean? And then she's just trapped in this like, oh, like, I don't know what to say because... Yeah, maybe I shouldn't have been drunk, but I didn't want to sleep with the guy, but I yeah. sort of did in the moment. I mean, it's just like so many different scenarios where it seems like if you're walking across the bridge of consent, that thing's going to just crash. It's going to break apart. Yeah, absolutely. It's tragic. And, and it's tragic. We're just so far from a good understanding of these bodies and souls that God has given us and uh, so much damage, so much shame on behalf of both men and women. So yeah. I pray that we can be a light. Yep. Amen. Amen. I wanted to um, switch gears and, and highlight one other quote that I underlined that I wanted you to speak to. Um, and this is kind of going back to the issue of homosexuality in our culture. Um, it's a quote from uh, Glenn, Glennon, Glennon Doyle, right? Okay. Did I say that right? Did I say that right? You said that right. Yes, yeah. here we go. This is provocative, um, especially as we're thinking um, from a biblical worldview, biblical worldview, she writes, maybe Eve was never meant to be our warning writing to women. I'm assuming here, um, maybe Eve was never meant to be our warning. Maybe she was meant to be our model. Own your wanting, eat the apple, let it burn. Um, that's, that's really, that's really sad. It's really scary. Why did you lead off that chapter with that quote? Yeah, that quote is so disturbing on so many levels. I think because for a couple of reasons, one is Glennon Doyle has in the past. And as far as I can tell, I read that whole book um, untamed that that quote comes from. And I, I try to read what Glennon writes because she, she is a best selling author off the charts and a woman who says that she is a Christian or a Christ follower. So, um, and her books constantly rank in the top Christian self-help books, um, wow. on Amazon and otherwise. And so, and I know women in the church who are reading her, um, she, she is well loved and she is looked at as a wise example of a woman who, um, who debunks or rejects culture you know, she's got her own ideas of what cultural counterfeits are uh -huh. and she rejects them. And then she just walks in her own freedom. So women are drawn to that. And Christian women are in particular, Glennon knows enough Bible 
as you saw in that quote, she quotes enough scripture and ideas of Jesus specifically that a woman who's not familiar with the word of God and his good design and the standards that he calls us to is won over by her words. And I, I have seen that time and time again inside the church. And so, um, Glennon then becomes a a good example to point to and go, here's what the world is telling us. Here's even what we're, we're listening to inside the church, but then let's compare it to what the Lord himself has said and test it. Right. All the more, um, does that connect to our need for knowing God through his word as he's revealed himself so that we can actually read a book and then compare it to the um, to the light of scripture and go, okay, is this false teaching? Is it not? But if I don't know my Bible, if I don't know what the true teaching is, it's hard to determine what the false teaching is. And so, um, it's so important for our people. I think like a big takeaway here is, um, knowing God through his word, or we can be so quickly captured by these counterfeit things because they don't come out and say, here I am to deceive you. It's just kind of the cultural air we breathe, the water we swim in. It's oftentimes very subtle. And especially if someone is quoting scripture and they sound like they know what they're talking about, that's what makes it deceptive, you know? Yeah. And it, and it scratches an itch too. I mean, who amongst us wants to submit and surrender ourselves to an authority? We're, right. we're all born in Adam with a desire right. not to do that. We that's want right. to satisfy ourselves. Right. That's right. So, um, it's easy to succumb to that false teaching because for a moment it feels good, but what's true is that it, it's actually a counterfeit. And so I want women to know the truth so well that they can identify that counterfeit. Yeah, that's really good. What would you predict if you, I mean, this is an unfair question. Um, so no one's going to hold you to this, but like, when you think about these things and these themes in our culture, you know, 20, 25, 30 years in the future, um, you know, God can do anything, but do you have a, do you have a sense for where, um, where this could lead in our culture in terms of the things you're writing about? Um, right. Right. Um, well, our sociological data shows us that women and girls specifically are more depressed and anxious and causing harm to themselves than ever before. Mm. Um, and that, that has risen sharply over the last two decades, um, right in line with the advent of the smartphone and having right. that, that tool in our hands of comparison. Um, so that has, that has taken a, a steep curve. Um, abortion obviously has been, um, a major cause of harm since 1973. And then we have this, also this LGBTQ situation and girls, especially succumbing to rapid onset gender dysphoria and harming their bodies. So, you know, it's hard to say, I mean, the human side of me feels like things are going to get worse before they get better. It'll be interesting to see, you know, Lord willing, if Roe is overturned, right? how we as a people address that and how we as a church address that. Um, I think ideally, best case scenario, if God would allow, um, our country and the church in particular would really rise to the occasion. And we would we would declare that women who are marginalized and hurting and in poverty and think that abortion is a good option we would, we would rush to protect those women and equip them and help them, Mm -hmm. um, to do all that they can to protect the life within them, you know? So 
Lord willing, maybe the pendulum will swing such that we will begin to minister to and care for the walking wounded, whether it's from abortion or self-harm or transitioning your body. My prayer is that the church will not shrink back and that we'll move into this um, with truth and grace and hope and care. But I don't know, Zach, it's it's hard to imagine um, light really shining in the darkness in an overwhelming way, you know, it feels like things might get worse. Um, yeah. yep. but this is an opportunity for the church. And so I just really want my brothers and sisters to feel emboldened because we know what is true and good and yeah. we have the tools of healing yeah. available to us. And so let's share them. Yep. Yeah. The thing I take comfort in is history is oftentimes not linear. You know, and, and there's lots of ups and downs throughout history. There's been lots and lots of darkness for the church throughout history. There's been some times of light and, um, so yeah, it's like, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I join you in like my concern for like, what's the trajectory here. And sometimes it feels like we have jumped off the cliff of absurdity in our culture. Um, I think we're already we I think we actually already have jumped. Um, we just maybe not have landed yet, but it doesn't really matter. Like when I read, I mean, it does matter. I don't mean it like that. It, but in terms of how we act as Christians, I'm not sure it really matters because you read the Bible and man, there are some challenges. There's some sexual craziness in, in Corinth and, and other places. And, um, there's a, a, a government that dominates and, you know, crushes all resistance and in ways that most Americans have no concept of. And so if it does get worse, I think we've got precedent as Christians with the Holy Spirit living in us the same way as they had 2000 years ago to keep on trucking, you know, yeah. <laughs> to keep going. Yeah. And so that's what I find my comfort in, like, um, that even if, even if things do get worse, it's going to be okay. And here's the deal. Like there's there, like if, if we're thrown in jail as pastors someday, and it could happen, um, for preaching Romans one or, you know, other topics having to do with sexuality or other texts that have to do with sexuality, like, like that's, that's already happening around the world. Yep. Um, and the Bible gives much you know, there's, there's much, uh, much ink has been spilled about that topic. Mm-hmm. And so like if, 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 if people get really, um, alarmist about, you know, the, the culture is like going to hell in a, you know, a handbasket and, you know, run for the hills and, you know, I just, I just, I just want to go back to scripture and like, well, wait a second. Like, I think there's a lot of data here we can draw from that could really serve us. Yeah, I totally agree. And and I think it's so good because what you have just communicated is not putting our hope in politics or the laws of the land, not putting hope in the kind of power we can wield as believers. Um, while it's good, and clearly I think it's important to be involved in the public square because yes. I am in a very public yes. way. I think yes. that's useful. But my hope is in the church being the mm-hmm. church. Mm-hmm. And my hope is in my risen savior Amen. who already rose from the dead and he's coming again. And so there's, we, we don't lose heart because of the good and the truth of Jesus and who he is. Um, we might be discouraged and disheartened by the trajectory of our culture, 
but our God reigns and that's Amen. not changing. Amen. Well, why don't we end on that note, Jen? That's okay. <laughs> that'll, that'll preach. And, um, I'm, I'm really encouraged by our conversation today. Um, thank you for your courage. Thank you for your perseverance. Thanks for, um, being a great mom. And I know you're uh, loving your girls along with your husband really well. And, um, so thank you so much for giving us an hour of your time and being our first return guest. Absolutely. Um, thank you, Zach. Hopefully maybe you, you know, with the next book, we'll have you back again and, um, we just wish you the best. Yes. I appreciate that. Thank you. 